0: In today's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with one half of one of my favourite YouTube channels, Foxes Afloat. For those of you not familiar with the Foxes Afloat channel, it follows Colin, an autistic ex-radio presenter, and his husband, Sean, who sold the home and built a brand new canal narrowboat named The Silver Fox. They live aboard full-time and travel the UK canal network as continuous cruises campaigning for mental health issues along the way their channel foxes afloat follows their travel vlogs of the canals and the beautiful countryside and everything that goes along with cruising in the canal network find out why they sold up and jumped into life as narrowboaters if colin's diagnosis of autism changed his life and what happens when a boat smashes into the side of your beautiful new narrowboat ladies and gentlemen colin dobson fox Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Well thanks for joining us. Whereabouts are you
1: more at the moment? We are just between Manchester and Warrington at the moment. Okay. So and-
0: north. Is that north?
1: Yeah, it's uh, Northwest. Do you
0: plan your routes and then do your videos or like how does it all work in terms of your structure?
1: It does vary. Most of the time we have, I wouldn't say an exact plan, but we have a rough idea of the general direction in the country that we want to go. Unfortunately, uh, at the moment, due to quite a a number of different reasons, uh, the 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 restrictions have held us back until now uh, for for most of the last year. Uh, But Mm. at the moment, there's there's quite a lot of things going wrong on the system. So we've got landslips and we've got culverts collapsing and lock gates breaking and bridges that have been crashed into (laughs) and and there's a lot of closures uh, specifically. Around us to be honest so we've got about seven or eight closures within about 50 miles around us so we, we're quite limited to where we can go at the moment so we have had to change the plan that we had uh, over the last week and we've we've now got a new plan for the next well for the next two or three months anyway
0: oh, we should actually explain to the listeners that you're on a narrowboat in england
1: <laughs> <laughs> it might be helpful <laughs> yeah
0: i yeah, forgot that aspect of things <laughs> how did you get into narrowboating like, why, why not do van life or something other than narrowboating?
1: We always used to walk down the canal. Where we used to live, there was a canal that was always very peaceful and it was always an escape because both myself and my other half, Sean, used to work really hard and I had my own business and I was also employed separately so I was carrying two jobs and Sean was wow. working about 60 hours a week so we were both working really hard and my mental health has never been good and so walking down the canal near to where we used to live was was an escape and we'd managed to do that once or twice a week and one day we we kind of got to thinking well if this chills us out so much, why don't we just do this full time? Why don't we give the jobs up, buy a boat, find another way of earning an income and mm. try and do this full time? And and we did it back in 2004, but it, it just wasn't the right time. It didn't work out. There was lots of things that happened that put us off the idea and, and it just it just wasn't working. So we, we bought a boat, but it, it lasted a few months. The lifestyle, not the boat. and then we came off and and just went back to, to to what we were doing before and it just wasn't the right time so we did it again we started the process again back in 2018 and it was the same thing we were walking down the same canal the same stretch of canal that we always walked and it was like well maybe maybe the time's right this time so it's just the peace it's the tranquility it's the it's the fact that you can move your home if it's too noisy if you get noisy neighbors you can just undo the ropes and off you go find somewhere else you've got that sense of calm and peace but if you want civilization you're never too far away from a town or a city and you can get back into civilization and then when you get bored with that or the noise becomes too stressful you can just go back out into the country
0: is it the peace and tranquility, obviously, with the country, but is it the fact that you're on water as well?
1: Uh, yes and no. I think the the canals are, I mean, there's, there's about 15,000 people that live on 2,000 miles of canal full-time. So 15,000 boats over 2,000 miles sounds like it might be quite crowded, but it's really not because the vast majority of those boats are in marinas. The actual amount of people mm-hmm. who continuously cruise moving around the network all the time is, 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 is quite low. So, I mean, where we are at the moment, there's, there's not a boat in sight and there's plenty of places where you can get that. So on water, there's more opportunity to be alone, to be out in the countryside and the canals tend to go to places where roads don't. So you do find that boat life as opposed to van life can be, you can get to more, quiet secluded uh rural places on a boat than you can in a van because it's easier in a van for somebody to just park right next to you because there's not a lot of designated places for van in the UK I mean there's quite a lot but it's just this mm. more opportunity to find that peace and quiet on the canal system than there is on the roads
0: can you do a permanent mooring like if you travelled somewhere loved it said we want to permanently moor here. Could you do that outside of a marina? Yes. Just along the river. You could, okay.
1: Yeah. You can moor you can moor wherever you want. If you can physically get pins into the ground and moor the boat up, then as long as it's not private land and there's not any no mooring signs or it's dangerous, then yeah. And and, and that's virtually the whole network. So yeah, it's 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 very easy to find somewhere that's that's totally isolated.
0: I was watching one of your videos the other day and you were talking about having to do the pre-planning before the winter shutdowns for the maintenance. And how far in advance are you planning those trips to avoid those shutdowns? You mentioned that you've got a lot around you at the moment.
1: Yeah. The winter stoppages are generally advertised by the Canal and River Trust, who look after the canals in August every year. Yeah. Uh, so last year, the middle of August, they released the final plan for the winter maintenance, which usually starts at the end of October and runs through until March the next year. Uh, and that gives us about three or four months to make a plan to make sure that we're not anywhere near the stoppages, that we're not going to get stopped. I mean, some of the stoppages are maybe a day or two. They're not very big jobs, but some of them can be quite long. Last year, they were completely rebuilding a lock, which took about four or five months to do. And if you get caught behind that, then you generally are stuck for four or five months. So in our case, we were in London, well, we were just outside London uh, at the time the stoppages were released and we wanted to be, well, where we are now in this area uh, for, for winter time. And so there was one stoppage about halfway between where we were, where we were going, and that would have been a, a three month stoppage. So we had to make sure we were past that point by the time that the canal closed. Uh but generally it's it's quite easy because like I say, you get you get at least two or three months' notice. So it's easy to to prepare a plan. The worst thing that happens is that you get an emergency stoppage, something that us and the canal and river trust have got no choice over. Like if a culvert collapses or there's a landslip or or there's damage to the canal for, for whatever reason. There, they're the ones that generally disrupt the plans. How
0: did you learn the whole because going through the canals, you've got locks, you've got got to wind up some of the footbridges. How did you learn all that? Was there a license that you needed to do?
1: Uh, the license you need a license for the boat, uh, but mm-hmm. anybody can get on a canal boat, and there's no formal training required. There's no license or or qualification or anything that you need. Most people seems
0: like a recipe for disaster.
1: (laughs) It can be fun if you see the really inexperienced boaters, and the thing is, is that we've all been there, so we don't kind of stand there and laugh. Sean stands there and laughs, but you kind of it brings back memories of where we were all there at one point. So you tend to jump in and and give them a hand and try not to come across as too uh, bossy or or as if you're laughing at them. But it is very simple. To be honest, it is very simple. And most people that hire a narrow boat, which is how most people start, tend to get at least half an hour to an hour instruction from the people that are hiring you the boat. So they'll show you a lock, they'll show you a swing bridge, and they'll show you the basics on maneuvering a boat. And then it's just it's up to you. It's, it's a very steep learning curve, depending on how you start. But it's, uh, I mean, we've been boating for on and off for about 20 years and we still learn new things every week. We still find a, a new lock mechanism that we've not done before and we kind of stand there scratching our heads and we get laughed <laughs> at by people as much as as like, as like if we were brand new to the canal. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's 300 years of engineering and 2,000 miles of network, so we're always going to be coming across new things. It would be a good idea, I think, if people were given at least some kind of recognised, structured introduction, I think that would be a good idea. It's probably impractical, and I'm not in a position to to preach about what should or shouldn't happen. Uh, I think just for, just for safety's sake more than anything, there should be at least uh, a kind of structured programme of, even if it's only like two days uh, before people can use a boat.
0: Well, it's good to see that you got your window fixed after you had that boat come through the... <laughs> <laughs>
1: And we should probably
0: explain that comment. There was, there's a video on the Foxes afloat channel, um, which is Colin and Sean's channel, and a boat came through the side of their uh, narrow boat and broke a window <laughs> in the middle of the night.
1: It was, it was, is, it, it, yeah, it was, yeah, it's eight thirty in the evening. Uh, we were sat watching Mr... I'll never forget it. It's like one of those nine uh, eleven moments where you know what you were doing at, the, at that exact moment. You'll never forget what you were doing. And we were sat on the sofa watching Mr. Robot on Amazon Prime Video And Sean had a glass of red wine. I had a bowl of (laughs) M&M's. I'm much more
0: aligned with your choice there.
1: (laughs) And, I mean, we were on the River Thames. And it's not the River Thames as you would imagine. Because most people, when you say the River Thames, uh, picture the tidal Thames going through central London. And Mm. we were much further uh, northwest near the origin where... It's still quite wide. It's maybe 150 feet wide at that point, but it's very quiet. There's no tidal current to it. It's very peaceful out in the middle of, uh, of, of the Oxfordshire countryside. And there was no warning. And it, it, in the first – it's strange because people say that when a traumatic event happens, things slow down, and you, and you kind of experience that moment in slow motion. Yeah. And the first thing I remember was this bang. And it was as if the only way I can describe it, it was as if 10 people were outside the boat with huge metal, uh, I've forgotten what they're called, sledgehammers. And they were all smashing at the boat at the same time. It was just this huge bang. And then there was this sound of this... I mean, this sounds so dramatic. It was it was the sound of an explosion. And it was because the windows are made from safety glass, the same kind of safety glass you have in your car windscreen or, mm-hmm. or bus and train windows. It's the same material. And so it doesn't just smash like a bottle. It, it literally explodes inside the boat. And we were sat about 15 feet away from where the crash happened, and we got... Which you your lucky. Yeah, we, we, we were still covered in glass. Sean got cuts wow. to his arms and legs, and this was 15 feet away from the window. And it, all that happened, it was, it was this river cruiser, and it was raining at the time, and it was a double-level river, river cruiser, so you could steer the boat from downstairs or upstairs. He was downstairs, and the windscreen wiper had stopped working on his boat, and he was having trouble looking out at the boat. So instead of stopping and switching the controls to the upstairs deck where he could see, he just thought he'd make a run for it while the boat was still moving. And I can see everybody shaking their heads. Just, and it's, <laughs> as it's, I was, just it's, it's, Yeah, so he's, he runs, and in the meantime, as, as he's running upstairs, the wind caught his boat and just steered it towards us and the bow, the front of his boat, the nose of his boat, just came straight through our one of our galley windows, uh, which is about probably three or four foot wide by two foot high. And, yeah, it just exploded inwards. The whole of the inside of the boat got covered in glass. And it was just a massive shock. Uh, but, it, I mean, looking back, it was very lucky because... He hit the window. He didn't hit the bodywork of the boat, so there's no damage to the bodywork of the boat, just the window.
0: Wow, oh, you were I mean, lucky.
1: Bless them. This poor couple were more mortified at the damage that caused than we were. so were like, "Oh, it'll fix it. Be right. We just need a new window." And they're like, "Oh, no, no, no! no. It's ruined our holiday. We've ruined your lovely boat." And Sean's like effing and jeffing at them. He's really, <laughs> he's, he's, he's really letting that. And I think that was just the shock. In reality, yeah. he didn't, he didn't spill a drop of his wine through the whole oh, of the event. well
0: saved. <laughs> so, were the M&Ms okay?
1: The M&Ms <laughs> were absolutely fine.
0: <laughs> well, one of the things that I love about watching your YouTube channel is that I can be sitting, having a cuppa in Australia, watching you and Sean have this lovely banter as you're sort of going along and you're seeing the countryside as, as you do it. You've got the history as well that you're into to your channel, which is lovely and not a lot of... Um, YouTubers necessarily do do that what made you want to start a YouTube channel and put your life out there in the first place
1: I was talking earlier about we'd done this before back in 2004 and it was the wrong time and that's that's a clue to the answer to that it was the wrong time because back into and this is very strange when you think about it because 2004 feels like yesterday yeah. But yet there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there was no <laughs> smartphones. We were no. using the Motorola Razor, the flip phone. Do you remember how cool that was back in 2004? I didn't even
0: have a flip phone. I had the brick. I didn't even have a oh, flip phone. Oh, yeah. right.
1: And so as technologically advanced as we all thought we were at the time, there was really nothing we, – we hadn't planned it. There was no internet that we could use on a boat back then. And so when we did it this time – there was Twitter, there was Facebook. It was the the we could get four G on the boat, and we could get an external antenna. We could have uh, hundred meg Wi Fi running through the boat. It was a revelation for us, and it changed it, it changed our lives in in how we can live on the boat because we could be connected to the outside world. And so, the idea for YouTube when we started the search for his new boat this time was because because of my mental health it was something to do it was a project we could turn the search and the build of the boat and the moving onto the boat into a diary a video diary and it was something for me to do it was something to keep my mind occupied and we had no idea back back then in in may 2018 that it would be so successful and would lead into all these other things We, we had no clue that that would happen but yeah that's 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 the reason we did it it was just it was a video diary and it was something to keep my mind occupied and now it's kind of taken over both his lives it's just wow mind blowing
0: So the 2004 it not being the right timing was just you not having that connect connectivity and connection with the outside world was it too isolating for you
1: I would say that's part of the problem yes uh, we we had no financial plan long term uh, my, I mean, I've I've since been diagnosed with high functioning autism and ADHD, mm-hmm. uh, which is what caused a lot of the anxiety and depressor- depression and stress. And back in 2004, that hadn't been diagnosed. So we had this massive adjustment from work and living in a house and a car and everything to living on a boat. And I, mentally, I wasn't prepared for that adjustment. So the combination of that uh, adjustment and not being able to adapt to it properly not having a long term financial plan and that part of being isolated totally isolated all played together and mm. just led to it not being right at the time and i think this time round when we did when we started thinking about it, about it back in 2017 2018 they were three of the questions that we were asking ourselves mentally am i prepared for the adjustment well yes because we know what's going on i know i know everything that's causing the anxiety and depression so we've got answers for that we're now connected so we can do all these things that we couldn't do before and financially we were in a better place so we had a longer term financial plan so we could move on the boat and all of the things that went wrong the first time round were already sorted out
0: you mentioned that you got diagnosed in 2004 with autism and ADHD. How did that diagnosis change um, your, your life and your thought processes? I mean, you've alluded to the fact that you knew what was going on then once you had the diagnosis, but was it, was it as life-changing as that, like that weight lifted in terms of I've got that diagnosis, I now know what's going on?
1: It's a very strange thing because, and I've spoken to a lot of other people since i opened up back in 2018 about my about my diagnosis and it's a strange thing because the diagnosis process itself took a day i was quite lucky and it was all done in over a day uh and there's nothing that changes apart from you get a badge (laughs) i asked for an actual physical badge And they made me a badge, which was brilliant. You get this you get this this stack of information and you get this I, I got this report that was maybe twenty, thirty pages long uh from the uh psycho uh the psychologist that's that that did the diagnosis. And it's, it's very in-depth and it's like, it's like the most intense counseling session that you've ever had because you basically sit in a room all day and you're asked questions and they just write away and they create this report and then they diagnose you. And it doesn't change anything because you don't get any – on the NHS in England, there is no further support for adults with uh, high functioning autism and so there was nothing else that could be done it wasn't like okay you have a diagnosis this is the medication we're going to give you this is the counseling and support that you're going to get that that doesn't exist you get the same medication if you ask for it that you would for general anxiety and depression it's no different there is nothing specific for high functioning autism i think the difference is that and, and you alluded to this when you were asking the question, is that it it lifts the weight from your shoulders because it's an mm. answer. This is why I feel like this. This is why I this is why a dog barking next door causes me to melt down. This is why I can't cope with this, that, and the other. And when you get the answer, it just makes your mind that little bit clearer when you're going through mm. these meltdowns, when you're going through these situations it's not like what's going on why can't i deal with this it's right right this is happening this is what i need to do and it is literally it's as simple as this dog is barking get away from the dog it's it's so yeah. simple and it's just weird how that diagnosis process can do that so it doesn't change anything it just it gives you uh, i think it, it it gives it gives you the tools to be able to understand and see what's going on
0: yeah it's interesting that you said that you didn't doesn't change anything because from what you've said, it sounds like it has in terms of um, giving you that answer instead of just and I would imagine I don't have these things and I don't want you to take this the wrong way. but if you don't have that diagnosis and you're having these meltdowns, you're probably thinking, what's wrong with me? like am I you know crazy but I oh, know, you're not crazy, but you know like if you're in your own head and you don't have those answers, and then you finally have this diagnosis, and you go, "Oh, that makes so much sense!" So the puzzle pieces can fit in. That stress and that anxiety and from not knowing, is, and would be taken away. So I would imagine that it would actually change quite a lot.
1: It's. I think the biggest change is that you gain more understanding as to what's going on. Yeah. So if if you were feeling depressed if you were feeling anxious if you were having a panic attack and you didn't know why you were having that panic attack Mm. the unknown tends to be a more intense feeling it's like let me let me try and put this into because a lot of people who don't experience mental illness uh, find it difficult to understand and the way I generally put this to people is that Imagine you've got a letter from your boss or an email from your boss saying he wants to see you at 9am tomorrow and he wants to talk about something very serious. So you, because you don't know what's going on, you'd be going to bed frightened and worried and anxious about what he wants to yeah. talk to you about. And you'd be yeah. fearing the worst. You'd automatically, even though you don't know what he's going to talk to you about, you would automatically assume the worst and start worrying. Yeah. And it could be that you go to that meeting the next day and it turns out that he's retiring, he's got a terminal illness, that's the very serious thing he wanted to talk to you about and he wants you to take over the company. So it turns from something very worrying and anxious and dramatic into something that, although it's sad for him, is a huge opportunity for you.
0: Are you saying that if if people with anxiety and depression have those thoughts that it's going to be worst-case scenario... Or are you saying that anybody would do that? Because I would think like that.
1: Anybody I would, would think that. that. It's, oh, yeah. a, it's it's, a, I, think yeah. it's a, I think it's a I think it's a general human reaction yeah. when you're not oh, when you yeah when you're not given the whole yeah. story if you're just given part of a story that you automatically people automatically assume the worst. I think mm. I did I did uh, some CBT therapy years ago, uh, and I What's think the CBT term was therapy. Uh, uh cognitive behavioral therapy so it's, about, it's okay. about how you think about things and i can never pronounce this word so see if i can get it right for the first time ever <laughs> Cata- catastrophizing yeah i think that's it yeah i think you and did that's... very well thank you <laughs> and i have got it written down in front of me phonetically <laughs> and uh, it's, i wouldn't it's... have
0: been able to say it so it's
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a normal human reaction where you automatically yep. assume the worst Right. And so the thing and, – and, and that's that's the way that I always try and describe it to people who don't understand high-functioning autism or ADHD or, or any other of the millions of other types of uh, mm. disorder that there can be. And it's a natural human reaction. So for me, going back to the autism and and, and how to understand it and did it make a difference – Yes, it did. But in that respect, because we were talking about this boss who wanted to see you, he didn't tell you why. So you were worrying all night, you were catastrophizing. There you go again. (laughs) And then you got to the interview, you got to to his meeting the next day, and everything was absolutely fine. And it worked out really good for you, although not so much for him. So for me, turning this back around to the original question, I now have an answer. So I now know what's causing it i know that my mind can't cope i know that my mind has certain triggers so somebody a boat mooring up to us who then hauls this great big 30 kilo generator out onto the towpath and starts it up like you would a lawnmower and it sounds like a tractor right outside your boat all night that is a trigger it would be for anybody but for me i hear everything at the same volume so if i'm sat in front of the tv watching tv and a boat pulls up and turns his generator on. Then the generator, the boat, the TV, Sean milling about, uh, Otis the dog uh, chewing his toy, people walking on the towpath talking—all those are the same volume. So, if you imagine sat in front of five different TVs on different channels, all at the same volume, that's that's my world. Even though my five TVs can be one in front of me, one twenty yards away, one half a mile away. It doesn't matter. My brain hears everything at the same volume. So that for me is a trigger, and I have a lot of sensory triggers, so things like noise and light and smell, and they can all cause anxiety. So they all cause that same feeling that you get on the night that you can't sleep because your boss wants to talk to you the next morning. Right. Okay, so the reason it's better for me is because I now understand why my head does that. But it doesn't mm. make the triggers any less anxious, if that Triggering. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So the feeling is still the same. It's still I'll still go into that fight or flight response. I'll still want to get away from the noise, whether it be by uh noise cancellation earphone, earphones or just getting out and away from the boat. I need to mm. I need to do something to combat that trigger and to stop that fight or flight response. Because someone with high-functioning autism, that that fight-or-flight response will just not stop. And if the trigger isn't taken away, it will get worse and worse and worse. And everybody understands the fight-or-flight response. It's where, imagine walking down an alley and somebody's running towards you with a knife. That's the fight-or-flight response, that feeling that you get, that panic, that need to get away and sweating and just not being able to think clearly. And with somebody with autism, that can get so intense that your brain eventually just stops and you just turn into this shell so you have no emotional response you just shut down and some you see people with autism that rock that's that's a coping mm. mechanism that some people with autism use i have something similar i tend to just curl up in in a fetal position with headphones on and just just lay there still and shaking for a while and we all have different ways of coping with it but the reason that a diagnosis makes a difference is because at least you understand what's going on, so you're more able to make decisions to try and avoid the triggers, and you know what to, and you know what to do when the triggers, uh, uh when the sorry, start that bit again. I forgot to turn my phone off, so I've just been getting a massive <laughs> notification right in my ear. Did you hear that?
0: No, I didn't. Right, I I'll can edit it out if you need to.
1: I'll just gonna put that on uh, on do not disturb. So I'm much more able to cope with the triggers, and not so much avoid them, but be able to be more understanding of them.
0: What What made you want to share that with the world and put that aspect of your life on YouTube, and not just focus on the narrow boating?
1: I'm going to be completely honest. Yeah, it was too. nothing to it was nothing to do with narrow boating. I used when <laughs> before we moved on to this boat. So back up until 2018. I was working in radio. I was a, a radio presenter for commercial radio, and I also—that's why you're own...
0: so good at this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I also owned a personal training gym. Yeah. So the two worked brilliantly together because being being the social, socially awkward introvert that I don't sound like, but I am—I I can't really? deal with—I can't deal with people face to face. That well, so I ran a personal training gym. It was a a, a small gym, but it had mm. everything that a, a gym would expect. So all the cardio equipment and treadmills and cross trainers and weights and medicine, everything you can think of, I, I had in this in this small gym. And it was big enough for me to train one person, and that worked brilliantly because there was no social interaction with crowds. It was just one person with me and then in the radio studio. So I'd do that from 6am till midday and then I'd go home, shower and go to the radio station and I'd be sat in the studio all day, all afternoon on my own, which suited me perfectly. And I was starting to have trouble at, uh, at the radio station and the people, my employers at the time had very little understanding of mental health issues, especially of, of high functioning autism and it was starting to cause problems at work and I needed to get away to cut a long story short I ended up having to leave because the working conditions were just so intolerable and their understanding of any mental health issues was was so low that I just I wasn't in a position to be able to stay it was driving me it was driving me out and so the vlog I made about mental health and, and and autism back in uh, 2018 was it was like a coming out video for the people I used to work with I'd left the job literally a week before I made that video so I was very upset because I'd, I felt inside that I'd been forced out I, I felt that I'd mm. been forced away from a job that I've been doing since I was 12 13 years old I started in uh like volunteering in hospital radio as everybody does that wants to get into radio. That's how I started when I was about 12 or 13 years old and I'd spent my life in this job that I loved and I felt that I'd been pushed out because they couldn't understand how to support people with mental health issues. And I was so, I I, I was, I was kind of conflicted because I was angry and I was upset, but I was also very sad and disappointed that that I'd been that I'd felt that I'd been forced out this way, and that nobody understood why. So this video was like a coming out video to my ex colleagues. It's to like, this is what's going on in my head, and they don't understand, and they're not going to do anything about it. And I and I had no choice, and I had to leave, and I hate the fact that I had to leave, but this is what it's like. This is what it's like in my head at the moment, and this is and going back and I, and I just told the whole story, so that was the reason i did it it was it was actually because at the time i think it was vlog nine we're on about vlog 148 now so it was very early on when we'd started doing youtube and we had like a couple of hundred subscribers at that point and we had no idea the channel would do what it did so at the time we didn't know that we were kind of opening up to this huge audience this was just at the time like a video diary and it was my way of expressing to people that knew me what had been going on and why and how it feels and then when i look back now it's one of the it's one of the highest viewed videos we've got coming up to three years later and it still gets hundreds of comments each week it still gets thousands of views each week and it's really weird when you look at the comments about people that say yeah i feel like that or it's it's prompted me to go see my doctor it's prompted me to get counseling it's I and it's 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 very strange that so many people seem to be relating to some or all of it in a way that it's triggering them to get help and to find out more about their own mental health so I think that's that's what's happened and it would be really easy for me to say that's why I did it but that's not why I did it I'm not I'm going to be honest (laughs) I'm not going to say I did it because I want to help everybody else I'm glad that it is helping all these people It was a big stuff you. Yeah, at the the time, I was just sounding off because I'd been forced out of my job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What was the response from your colleagues, your (laughs) Uh, ex-colleagues?
1: The response from my colleagues was they weren't surprised. I think they knew deep down that I was this introvert, that I was this kind of shy loner, that there was something that was causing me to be anxious a lot that was avoiding the parties, that was avoiding the big events, the get-togethers. And I don't think it was a surprise to them, but I think it was just sad because the the, the situation at the time was sad. I'd, I'd lost a job that I love, and the fact that I had to walk away from it made it even mm. worse for me. I think if I'd have been sacked, that would have been better because it would have just been anger that I would have got over. But the fact that I had to make a decision to walk away from one of the biggest loves of my life was the thing that hurt and still hurts. And I think that was the, the overriding feeling even at the time amongst colleagues that this situation had happened Mm. and they, they'd lost a colleague as much as I'd lost uh, the job that I love. But you can't look back. You've got to keep looking forward. And I think that video has done a lot more good for people in the last three years and for me, it doesn't get me back into the job that I love. It kind of created a new world, as in the YouTube videos that we and the channel and the brand that we've built since then. As we get more viewers now than I ever got on the radio before, so <laughs> in a way, it kind of worked out quite well.
0: <laughs> Foxes afloat is the, float, the channel you need to go check it out. Um, <laughs> what what made you sort of go from? the traditional this is what we're doing in everyday life to bringing in the history of the area into what was that decision? Because that I love that aspect of your videos.
1: I always fancied being a teacher and the one thing... <laughs>
0: See, that's interesting because you have the anxiety being in with the lots of people and the noise. That's,
1: that's why I'm not a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe you could put this down to, again, It's living the life that I used to have on the radio because my presentation style on the vlogs is exactly the presentation style I used to have on the radio. I was just being me. And I would just talk to people, whether it be a microphone or a video camera. I I look at that video camera and I want... I, I, I look at the video camera and it's like I'm on the radio. When I used to look at a microphone on a radio... I would look at the microphone and imagine one person, and that's what I do when I'm looking at a camera. I imagine one person, the one person that's watching. I'm talking to you, just you, and so I want to be engaging and personable as if I was talking to one person. I, if you notice on the vlogs, we never say hello everybody and mm-hmm. to you all, and we we don't we don't talk about an audience as an audience. We we want people to feel like they're on the journey with us individually they could literally be on the boat with us Mm. and that's how i always used to be on the radio and so the storytelling comes from the radio because you've got to add a little bit of imagination and make anything that you're talking about a bit more interesting so i think the historical side the canal was was a no-brainer because this it's a some of the system is is coming up to 300 years old 250 300 years old and there's literally a story for every meter of canal that you can travel so if you're talking about two thousand miles of canals you're talking about thousands hundreds of thousands of different stories to be told and Like anything else, you can tell a story like you read it off Google or like you read it off Wikipedia, or you can tell a story as if you were there and just add that bit of human feeling to it and that engagement and make people feel immersed and part of that story rather than just speaking about facts. This tunnel is X meters wide and X meters high, which we do. But, but we add a little bit of sort of we put some meat on the bones to the story, yeah, and try and engage and bring people in and make them interested. And I think that's that's the that's the teacher in me that never happened coming out.
0: Is immersing yourself into the vlog side of. YouTube and life, how you overcame, I don't know whether or not you have overcome it because you said that you're still hurt in terms of leaving the station. Is that something that sort of dulled that pain a little bit during the vlogs?
1: I think I'll always be sad at leaving radio and realistically it was probably the best time for that to happen because in the UK most of the radio, most commercial local radio stations have now been Merged into bigger national groups, and some of them might still be labeled and marketed as local, but they're actually not. And a group in London will be operating 10 or more stations nationally that will market as local, but they're not local. And so, local radio, local commercial radio employment has, has dropped like a stone. So, in reality, the station that I was working for laid off all their staff about a year after I left. So I probably would have been without a job anyway. Mm. That doesn't stop the hurts in how things happened when I left, but I have to look at it realistically. So yes, it's it kind of does hurt. I think the reason that I kind of immerse myself in it is just, again, I'm going to be honest, it's just been damn nosy. What I do is, if we plan a route, I'll pick out probably five or six what I think are interesting points along that route, and I will just be—I'll just be nosy. So I just start digging. I'm like a nosy neighbor, and I want the scoop and I want the gossip on what happened because there's always (laughs) going to be some quirky little spin on what it says in the book. You'll pick a fact up from Wikipedia and the if you dig deep enough you'll always find a character or a name or just something that happened that's just slightly different to how they're telling the story and you can just make it more interesting and because i want to because i want to have our channel give across this information in an entertaining and engaging way i think that's what makes me immerse myself more in the story. I think if I can live that story sat here at the table that I'm sat talking to you, I can put my headphones on and just disappear into this world from 200 years ago and try to understand what was going on at the time and then tell the story in that way rather than just putting across facts.
0: How's lockdown um, hindered that storytelling process? How do you do lockdown on a narrow boat? (laughs)
1: <laughs> so lockdown on a narrowboat uh, lo- We've had three lockdowns We had March, April mm. and into May last year uh, The first one we basically found the first I mean we kind of knew about a week in advance That it was coming Because pe- they were talking about it So you kind of had this And then when we heard that the Prime Minister Was going to make an announcement And it was all very obvious in the w- in the week or so before That what it was leading to so we managed to find a place that was just out in the oxfordshire countryside it was in the middle of nowhere and you couldn't see a a building as far as the eye could see so boats were told not to move except for essential reasons only which is for refilling with water disposing of rubbish medical reasons mechanical emergencies things like that and we found a spot where we stayed for about three months and we just moved backwards and forwards for water Sometimes we move forward a little bit to get to a supermarket. And if we couldn't turn round, we'd just move forward, but only every time we needed to. Uh lockdown two was a bit different. That lockdown two was in November last year, but uh the big well, about a week before that lockdown started, we both contracted COVID. Mm. Uh and Sean's dad, my other half Sean, his dad had contracted COVID, but the doctors had misdiagnosed him. He hadn't any symptoms of COVID at all, but he was very weak and very ill, and the doctors diagnosed him as being anemic. Now, we were part of a support bubble at the time. A support bubble in the UK was where a certain group could could still get together uh, mm-hmm. under certain circumstances. So we were in a support bubble, so we could, we could be with Sean's dad while he was ill but he didn't have anemia. He actually had COVID and it hadn't been diagnosed because he hadn't had any of the symptoms. And that's how we contracted COVID. Because if we'd known, if he had any symptoms of COVID or the doctors had diagnosed or suggested it, obviously we would have uh, separated ourselves from him. Mm. So that's that's how we got COVID. And, And Sean was very, very ill. He was hospitalized for a while. And I was ill for a couple of weeks. So during the November lockdown, we were actually locked literally locked down in the boat both with covid uh and that was that was quite a rough time and then the latest one which started in the beginning of january uh again we were we were on the peak forest canal which is where we stayed for three months nearly four months and that one wasn't as bad for us because we were both fit and healthy and we were on our favorite stretch of canal in the country, which is just beautiful anybody that's seen the vlogs uh, for the Peak Forest will see especially how much I liked it and I was in tears when we left a couple of weeks ago so yeah it's 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 been different I think it's been it's been harder for those people that don't live aboard the boats because people who have boats but don't live on them haven't been allowed to visit them or mm. go out on them until uh, until now so I think the canals are going to be very, very, very busy this summer. I was speaking to a couple of hire boat companies and they've said that their boats, all of their boats, are now fully booked every day until November. So it's going to be very busy this summer out on the canals.
0: I don't – um I completely understand why we've had some – in the state that I'm in, in Australia, we've had some really long lockdowns and, uh, yeah, I – I was voluntarily ready to get out of the house when the, they lifted it, so I could understand the fully booked out um, boat situation. That's for that's for sure. I was glad to hear that um, that Sean recovered okay. How long was his? How long did it take him to recover?
1: Well, he went when he went into hospital, which was mm. about ten days in. The uh, the doctor did a chest x-ray and was very surprised that the size of the shadow on his lungs wasn't causing more problems than it was. And they gave him some steroids and antibiotics and he was he was actually released within a few days. He wasn't wow. well, let me put it that way. Mm. And the day he got home, I, I was actually very annoyed and upset because he seemed to be in the same state that he was when he went in. So I was worried that the just released him too early and I, I was worried to be honest i think it was just worry yeah. and it took him he had he had a very very bad cough for about two months and that lasted until just after christmas and then he, he he gradually began to improve he still gets out of breath if he's walking especially like uphill or doing any strenuous exercise and he does get out of breath and and still suffers from fatigue but i mean he's 99 percent better than he was uh, at uh, uh, its worst point, when we 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 actually rang for an emergency ambulance, he was he was laid laid down on the boat, and he'd gone grey. Literally, his his face was was grey, and he was getting pains in his chest, and his blood oxygen level was about ninety percent, which was very low. And that was the point that we called the emergency ambulance, and I think that was the worst point. But uh, it, it, it's been a very gradual improvement. I don't think he's got any long term. Like the long COVID that, that a lot of people are, are suffering from, I don't think it's quite that bad, but uh, but yeah, it's it's it was a rough time. Looking back, it, it feels like an eternity ago. I mean, we're talking about the end of October, and what are we now? October, So it's like six months ago. It does. It feels like last week. We were talking about two thousand and four, feeling like yesterday. It's, yeah. it's the same thing. It just feels like a couple of weeks ago.
0: Your, when is lockdown finished? It's next Monday, isn't it, There that it finishes?
1: Uh, from April the 12th, we are allowed to cruise freely. Uh, so the rules are slightly different on the canals. Well, the interpretation of the rules are slightly different on the canals. So... Off the canals, uh, pubs can reopen for serving outdoors. Non-essential shops can reopen. So essentially, life is starting to get back to normal from from April the 12th. Uh, we were able to make local trips on the boat from the 29th of May, uh, March. Sorry, So we've been making very short local trips since the 30th of March. Uh, mm. But from A- April the 12th, that's the date where we can then cruise without any restrictions.
0: So what's the plan now? Because you're heading into... Um, your summer so what's the plans now in terms of your canal routes
1: yeah this goes back to when i was talking about stoppages we've still got stoppages literally circled around us if you imagine a dartboard and we're at bullseye and then we've got stoppages going anywhere that we want to go around us so we're quite limited at the moment uh we're staying in the northwest for the time being and it all depends on the stoppages if if the stoppages open we we have a route which takes us uh, back down south, across the eastern side. Uh, if the if that stoppage isn't sorted, then we might be heading east over the Pennines towards uh, towards Lincolnshire, or we might have to go further northwest towards Liverpool and Lancaster. So it's a bit unknown at the moment. We're 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 kind of floating around the Manchester area and just waiting to see what happens and enjoying the sunshine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I can see that. I think Colin's off camera, uh, Colin, Sean's off camera, sort of hurrying, hurrying us along. So I'll let you go and enjoy that sunshine. And
1: I look forward to
0: uh, keeping track of those travels um, on the narrowboat on your YouTube channel. Thank you so yes. much.
1: Very nice to talk to you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them.